Hey everybody, so Heidi here, and this is part one of a two-part series where I interview independent fashion designer, Rochelle Behrens. Her successful brand, The Shirt, which you can find at the-shirt.com, was launched in 2009. Oprah named her the must-have fashion item of the year. She was profiled in Inc. Magazine as top 30 under 30 and featured in the New York Times Sunday Style section. We'll talk about how her original career path took her not to fashion school, but into politics, how she recognizes that creatives always find a way to develop their ideas. If you have something inside of you that needs to be expressed or an interest, like it, it usually, it might not always appear early on, but it really needs to be manifested in some ways. And for us, it both was the foundings of it were there, even in the early 90s. We also have a special reveal for you, so hang with us until the end. All right, Rochelle, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, you graduated from University of Pennsylvania with a degree in political science. You started out working in politics in Washington, D.C. You did spend some time working at the White House. Uh, you don't have any formal experience or training in fashion, meaning you did not go to fashion school and you've never worked for a fashion company as an employee. Uh, but you now run a successful fashion business. Can you talk about the path and transition from Pennsylvania Ave to Fashion Ave? Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. Um, so my path is not the traditional path for a fashion designer or someone launching a fashion brand. And in fact, I think that is in some ways what has made me successful in this and that I'm approaching it from a completely new way with a new set of eyes. And what it is that I've created, which I think we'll probably get into later, is a product that solves a problem. And it's a problem that if you go to fashion school, you wouldn't necessarily design for. In other words, if you go to fashion school or design school, you're taught a certain sort of set of ways to do things and it doesn't necessarily solve problems, it creates fashion. And so that's the first thing, I'm solving a problem. And I, the problem that I'm solving is something I experienced in the real world. So in order to sort of explain that, let's back up and I'll take you um, on a journey of uh, my career starting at the White House indeed. I was interested in politics and I was working at a lobbying firm downtown in Washington DC and I was working amongst a lot of men, a lot of type A men that exist in Washington. And I wore button-down shirts to work every day because I thought that was sort of the perfect young professional woman's uniform. The problem is my button-down shirts never fit me. I bought scores of button-down shirts. You name the brand, you name the price, high, low, mass, expensive, fine details, etc. None of them ever fit. And every day before work, I would weave a safety pin sort of carefully between the fabric I'm sure a lot of you know listeners know exactly what that's about. So weave the safety pin between those layers of fabric to hold the shirt close together. And it was a mess every day. There was It was like a hole poked and a little damp every day. And I thought there has to be a better way to wear button-down shirts. And it was innovation born purely out of necessity. And I think that my real world experience is exactly where I was able to come up with this idea. Um, in terms of the transition from working in a place like politics to fashion, which isn't a natural one, for me, I not only majored in political science in college, I also majored in art history. So I've always been interested in sort of the intersection of fashion, art, culture, um, what I say is sort of the frivolous and then the serious. 
you know, the art history was sort of balanced by the seriousness of political science. So I've always had that duality in me. And while I was working in politics, I always felt like I needed to express myself artistically. I never knew that it would sort of come out in this way, but it has. I'm, an in, you know, I'm, an, I'm a tinkerer and an innovator in some ways, and it had to happen in fashion. Um, I can speak to sort of how I actually got started from there, but there might be some additional questions. No, actually, I'd like you to go into that right now because I think that what a lot of listeners might be curious about and what I'm curious about is, like, what were some of the more actual steps that you took? You know, you have this job. It's completely opposite of what you now have this idea to do is start this fashion brand. And like, what are some of the exact steps you did to get started and making that transition? So Washington DC politics could not be any further from New York fashion. Uh, That's an understatement. So you're right, the question is how do you transition from a career or a job that has nothing to do with what it is that you wanna develop your passion in? And for me, it came down to just pure research. One, I had an inclination toward being interested in fabric and fabrications. I was a good shopper. I understood how fabric draped. I understood something about fit. I obviously was obsessed with the idea of the perfectly fitting shirt. So I became so engrossed in learning about the fit of shirts um, and what could make the fit of shirts better. So I really delved in and did my research. But the question is, once you have an idea, how do you actually put it into motion? And that came from, honestly, good old Googling. I, I wasn't sure entirely how to start. I remember Googling enough that I found actually a consultant in New York. She was a fashion consultant that helped young brands by introducing them to pattern makers and sample makers. And I just cold called her. Um, and I ended up taking a vacation day and the Bolt bus from Washington DC to New York and meeting with her. And that was really how I got started. She introduced me to a factory and actually it was a beautiful factory and pattern maker that had done work with Diane von Furstenberg and the Rowe and Elizabeth and James and Catherine Malandrino. So I knew I was in very good hands. And they really took the time to, in their own way, to sit down with me and be patient with me. You know, I was able to pay for the samples which you know, if there, no one in this business gives you much for free. Um, but because I was willing to invest in buying the samples, they were willing to do the, the work for me. And the reality is you don't have to be that skilled or that technical as long as you have the right team behind you. So I had done enough sort of sketching out of the concept. The reality is I was working with the basic body of a button-down shirt. Um, but what I had created was this button technology, which ultimately I patented. And the button technology is different from what exists in normal shirts. Um, the placket that the button sits that the buttons sit in are different from ordinary shirts. And sort of getting over that hurdle of explaining to the pattern maker over and over and over again that this was going to be a different concept was something that took a little bit of effort. But once I had one introduction, it led me to every other, um, contractor that I've worked with basically since that first meeting. I mean, every, everybody has introduced me to someone else because I asked enough questions. What do I do now? Where do I take this? And I've learned how to do a lot of things on my own, but I've also learned what I don't know how to do and that there are people that are highly skilled at building patterns, at making samples. For me, I'm a marketer and I'm good at PR and I'm good at selling my product. I for me to spend time really learning from the bottom up how to 
build a garment wasn't really the best use of my time. So I found the right people for it. And it was simply a matter of getting one introduction and hitting the ground from there. I love this answer so much because I literally am working on an article right now and it talks a lot about how to be a fashion designer without going to fashion school. And a couple of the pieces of advice I'm giving is do research, get yourself enough base knowledge that you can kind of talk about things to, to the extent that you can, that it looks like you've done your research and then start making phone calls. Don't send an email, pick up mm -hmm. the phone and call. And once you get your face in front of those people, ask as many questions as they are willing to answer. Those are literally the three things that I'm telling people. And it's exactly what you did and it got you to where you needed to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really true. I, you sort of have to fake it till you make it to a degree so people will take you seriously. But from there on out, I just asked an endless number of questions mm -hmm. until I understood what was going on. And then I always asked to be referred to someone else, always. Um, I think being really inquisitive in this business is like the only way. You can't act like you know it all because then you'll never get passed along to anyone else that will be willing to help you. So asking a lot of questions, doing the research, Googling till your heart gives out is, you know, the, the, I think the best way to get your foot in a door somewhere. Yeah. I want to touch on one thing. Um, I mean, I've always been very generous to give knowledge. I love teaching people things. I love learning things. So I'm just like you, I ask a lot of questions. But something I hear and, and you see a lot in the fashion industry is that people are so secretive, they keep their things close to their chest. Um, and I have some theories about that, um, but I'm curious, you know, it sounds like you've been able to get answers to everything you need to know by asking a lot of questions. And what, what have you found in terms of like, if you just approach someone, you show them your, you've done your base knowledge, you're hungry to learn, and you're humble that you don't act like you know everything. Do you find that people are actually pretty willing to share? Yes and no. I think you have to know the right people to ask. For instance, I get so many people asking to, you know, that they have friends that they want to refer to me because they're starting a business. There are only so, I'd like to help as many people as I can, but there are only so many people I can try to give out my factory information to. The reality is, I think if you want to get started in this business, find the, find the contractor that is going to do the work for you. In other words, do your research to just, you know, there are enough um, aggregated websites that have a basic, if not a little outdated, but a basic list of factories and pattern makers and sample makers in New York. Start calling them. Don't necessarily call someone who's already in business because they either don't have the time or the opportunity or the interest, unfortunately, I would say call the people that are actually going to do the work and they can refer you. Go meet with them, learn something, and if they can't do it, they'll usually know someone else who can. I would say that's the best bet. That's a great idea, yeah. Go directly to the source who's gonna be doing work for you as opposed to your competition, exactly. per se. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Sad. it's sad, but it's sort of true, yeah. and it's okay. I mean, and plus, anyone who has had some success in this business is getting inundated, and that's not to say they shouldn't, respond to those, you know, to people that are new to the business, but mm. they probably won't give you the most candid information, but you're right, the source will. Yeah, great, great suggestion. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit next about the distribution and the marketing of your product, and you mentioned earlier how that's where you excel with the marketing and the PR and the sales and stuff, so I do want to dive pretty deep into that because I know a lot of people are really curious about marketing and promoting and selling, mm -hmm. and it's one of the things, I talk to a lot of startup designers, 
and everybody says, oh, I had this great idea. And my first question is, how are you going to, what are your distribution channels? How are you going to sell it? And I think a lot of people are so creative and they've got these brilliant ideas and they sometimes don't think about how they're actually going to get it out the door. Um, and I think that can actually be one of the more challenging parts mm-hmm. of the process. Um, so I've, in my head, I kind of break down the apparel, any actually any product distribution into kind of three tiers. So first you have direct to consumer. You're selling one shirt, for example, to one person, one to one. Then second, you have wholesale. You're selling a box of shirts to a business that's then going to sell them direct to consumer. Um, and then third, you have, and I've just kind of called it next level. I don't really know if there's a word to describe it, but um, it's something that you've done successfully. And these are things like licensing your product or your brand or your technology um, and box subscriptions. So for those listeners who don't know what box subscriptions are, it's these sort of subscription services that, that consumers subscribe to and a box of products hits their doorstep every month with things that they might like. And so you've done some licensing and some bo- you've gotten your product into some box subscriptions. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you started selling bigger and got your product to what we've called this next level distribution. Mm-hmm. Great question. Well, I think what's interesting about starting a fashion business in this day and age is that anyone can hang a proverbial shingle you know, on an internet address and start up a website and begin selling. It's so easy now. There are so many tools and e-commerce packages that make it so easy to sell online. There are a lot of inherent problems with selling online, however. Uh, you have to carry inventory. You have to find a market. Um, it can be very difficult. It's incredibly competitive out there because it's so easy and there are so few barriers to entry. So many people are doing it. It's become so crowded. I think it was a lot easier, to be honest, when I started um, around 2008, 2009, 2010, because there were so fewer, so many fewer brands than there are now. So when we started, because we basically launched on the Oprah Winfrey show, we needed a way for our customers, for those customers to be able to buy the product and my dream with the shirt was always to be a traditional brand to be in traditional bricks and mortar to be in the department store to be a well-known brand but when you're starting out and it's a cash intensive business because you have to buy inventory and you don't have a lot of capital Starting online is an incredible way to st- to begin. And so that's really how the business started in spite of the fact that I wanted to do traditional bricks and mortar. Now, it's continued on that pathway because our word of mouth has been so successful. Our PR has been so great. We get written up a lot. But the question is, what's beyond that? Because you have to, at some point, once the stories run out, once you know, you, you're, mark- you're constantly changing your marketing, you actually have to, at some point, pay money to begin acquiring your customers. There are so many women in this country and yet it's so hard to penetrate and you literally have to go out and pluck one customer at a time to get to your site and buy your product. It's very expensive. And some of the biggest online brands that you know of, it's hard for them to even turn a profit because they're spending so much money on a per customer on an acquisition basis. Like you'd be shocked to know the number. I mean, we're talking about $30, $50 per person to just get them to come to the site and buy. That's an incredible amount of money to spend. I mean, these are people that are raising a lot of venture capital money. They're spending a ton of money to just get customers there. 
you have to have a lot of money to make that happen. So I think while it's very easy to start online, it's also very difficult to scale. Plus the idea that you actually have to have inventory because as you know, in this day and age, when people buy online, they expect their product immediately. You can't tell them it'll be two months or six weeks. Um, you can only chalk up so many times that demand is off the charts and that you know, you're on back order before you need to have something to sell. So the question is, how do you move beyond that? How do you move beyond you know, your core base of customers? If you're not raising money, if you can't spend that kind of money to acquire customers, how do you actually scale? Because as you know, the sort of laws of being able to produce are that you can only produce volume if you, you can only produce for a low amount of dollars if you have volume. But of course, a factory is only going to take you on for the most part if you have volume. So it's a real chicken and egg concept. So then there's the idea of selling wholesale, which is a very difficult place to start because the retail landscape has changed so much. It's so consolidated. There aren't that many department stores anymore. Buyers aren't experimenting with new brands. They go to their tried and true brands that they've bought for a long time. Real estate within department stores is very expensive with all the shop and shops that you see. So it's very hard for a new brand to get anywhere there. And um, the other thing that you can do is to sell to specialty boutiques, which is a great business, but you have to find capital to go to a trade show. You have to have sales reps. It's a cash, it's also capital intensive at the beginning. So the question, and you can, you can create an enormous business from doing wholesale, but all those stars have to align to be able to do it right. So for me, the question was, not only do I have a product, a fashion product, but I have a product that is all about fit. I patented a technology and have two patents on a technology to make women's button down shirts fit well. And what differentiates me from every other shirt company on the market is that we really focus on the perfect fit and achieve that. And with the intellectual property, it's sitting on a potential gold mine in terms of what, so I can use it in my brand, but I might not be able to ever be able, without raising money, scale in the way that I want to. So how do I take this technology which I created, which can benefit so many women by making them feel confident and get it in the hands of a lot of people? And I've been able to do that by licensing not only the name of the technology, which is No Gape, which is a registered trademark, but by also licensing the patents to larger brands that are able to insert it into their shirts and sell at a much larger volume and thus get it out to a number of, to a lot of people. And that's been a really interesting thing that I have taken on in the past year um, and has been, you know, a very interesting and good revenue source. So, you know, if, you're, if you have something that differentiates you from everyone else, if you can get any sort of intellectual property around your concept, trademarks, anything novel, it's worth exploring that route because it might be worth more than the product itself in the, in the end. So that's been fun. And the last part is these subscription boxes, which is also something I've explored. Um, they're doing very well right now, you know, where you get a box in the mail every month and women are love, you know, women are strapped for time and they love discovering new products. And so it's been a great way to sort of delight new customers when they are able to try on the shirt and they're, they're, those are growing, um, 
growing industries. I don't know for how much longer they'll grow, but I would say, you know, looking for sort of what that next big retail growth opportunity is and then moving toward that is a good, you know, would be advice I would give to people. So I saw that the subscription box market share was like really taking off. So I decided to pursue trying to get in one and, and had been and have been successful. Oh, I love that. It's um, no pun intended, but just kind of thinking outside of the, the box. box. <laughs> so cheesy about it. Um, so I love these ideas because I think that so many people just get stuck with the direct to consumer and the wholesale business. And so kind of if you can pinpoint what is that little technology or the trademark or the special feature that you have that you can then turn into something that's bigger than your product mm-hmm. is so brilliant. Um, how are these opportunities that you've, these two specific opportunities um, that you've successfully pursued, um, are these things that you've kind of brainstormed and come up with your own and pursued on your own or have opportunities come to you and how do you kind of decide what are you going to really invest in pursuing or what do you, um, if opportunities have come to you, deciding if it's the right fit for your brand, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about deciding what's the, how do you've decided so how you market your product and how you brand your product is very important. How you protect the distribution channels is important. So where it is that you're selling is important to deter- you know determine what your brand stands for. So for me and for the shirt, you know, being very careful about the distribution channels is something I'm mindful of. At the same time, you don't want to stifle it. Because I have this dream that, you know, I'm building this brand that's going to be the go-to shirt company for women. We sell shirts anywhere from $76 to $200. So we target women at the high end. We target, you know, women that have, you know, a little bit more of an accessible price point. But we know we're not selling shirts for $24 like at H&M. We're not selling them for $12 or for $30. You know, they start at $76. So... We know that's where we've positioned our brand through pricing and through quality because the quality and the fit and what our shirt does justifies the price. So on the one hand, you you need to protect where you're putting your product. On the other hand, you don't want to just stifle every opportunity because you're so strong, you know, strong headed that you're product should be X when meanwhile Y is willing to buy it and Y could be like a huge opportunity. So for me, the brand has shifted over the years. Things I never thought that, you know, places I sort of never thought that I would sell have become interesting because they're big opportunities. At the end of the day, I'm not trying to protect the shirt for a limited number of people who can buy it. I'm trying to distribute a product that fits a lot of women and will make a lot of women perform better at work because they feel confident and feel great. And so I think my thinking has shifted over time, which is also something I think really important is, you know, while people say, I'll back up, but everyone in the beginning was like, do you have a business plan? I'm like, no, I, this is going to like shift along the way. I don't have a business plan. Like I don't, you know, I have an idea of who my market is. I have a, an idea who's going to buy it. But over time you realize who actually is buying it. And then you begin to market toward that. So with some of the opportunities that either have come my way or that I've pursued, they've been sort of different than what I thought they were going to be in the beginning. And I will say the opportunities have come about in one of two ways. One is I 
am relentless in my pursuit of people. I try not to be annoying. You know, buyers like get inundated with calls. They're not going to call you back. You can try to work it as much as you can. On occasion, you'll get someone to respond to you. And when you do, you just seize that. You have all your samples ready or swatches ready. You have everything ready and deliver an easy package to them, whether it's electronically or you know, send it to their office. But sometimes you have just that one window that someone gives you. Sometimes they give you a window and then you never hear from them again and you wonder what happened. So I think just relentless doggedness in going after people without being annoying because at the end of the day, they have big jobs and other things to do than just respond to you. Um, but the second is that I also put myself in positions where opportunities would come my way. For instance, I a few years ago, I attended um, like a fashion tech conference. It was a pitch conference. So I went up and pitched on stage to a whole bunch of potential investors, to a lot of other startup entrepreneurs. I put myself, you know, a little out of my comfort zone, I guess, got up on stage and pitched. And I met really in, in the like happy hour after it, I met some really interesting people now that I work with. I met some guys that now do my deal flow there because they were there looking for potential opportunities. So, you know, everyone that's sort of floating in this startup fashion world has an angle and people want to help each other because if the idea is good or the product is good, then you know, someone's sitting on something golden and everybody wants to help. So I would say putting myself out there in those situations has helped open doors. Um, and with these, you know, now I'm working with some guys that help me negotiate the, the deals that either come my way or that we pursue. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's always something I encourage people to is to get out there. You can't just sit behind your computer the whole time and making phone calls is good, but it's also good to do stuff in person. Um, if you can, I mean, obviously not everybody has accessibility to New York or to LA or some other fashion hub, um, but just getting out there and meeting people or becoming part of some type of online community to network and collaborate, I think is so fundamental in meeting like-minded people who, you know, you're working on this thing and, and someone else has this service and together you guys can make a really good team. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like that's really how you were able to kind of take things to the next level and then get opportunities to come to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You have to get out there. Yeah, you to I say love it. that. And I agree, phone calling is, is better than email. I mean, it's not as easy to ignore. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people that simple. all the time. I, um, for my design agency, I get quite a few emails of people soliciting our services and asking for advice on wanting to start up a fashion line. And I hardly ever get to those emails. If I do, I just reply back and just say, oh, we're not accepting new clients right now. And it's very short and brief. If someone calls me and asks if it's a good time, I will sometimes give them 20 minutes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I'll give them a little consulting and I'm not going to provide services for them because we're, we're typically not a good match. But those 20 minutes, they always leave the phone call with, wow, that was so amazing what you just told me. Thank you for teaching me all of that. So, you know, we're living in such a modern and technologically driven world that I think people, especially some of these younger designers, and I'm, you and I aren't that old ourselves, but I think discount the value of picking up mm -hmm. the phone and talking to someone with your voice. I will say, I agree with that. I will say though, I had sort of a negative experience related to that last week. I got a phone call from someone who hadn't done his research and asked me a question that was 
so it was irrelevant. It turns out he never even been to my website. He didn't know what I was selling. He had seen my name and my phone number somewhere and that it was a shirt company. And, and Cole called me, which I gave him credit for, but then had no idea what I did or if I had a website or what my product was. So if you're going to do that, do your research and know because it was a wa- I knew it was going to be a waste of time. And I, I suggested quite clearly to him, I said, why don't you just do a little research and then you can give me a call back once you have your questions straight. Yeah. So you you want to make sure that you're prepared before you do that. Yeah. People are willing he, to help, but yeah. Had he just Googled your name, he would have found you. Would have, yeah, he would have seen <laughs> he plenty. He would have gone right to the shirt and he would have known better. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great tip. Um, okay, so we've already talked a little bit about your patent and um, it's on the specific technology with the buttons and the construction of the shirt that prevents the, the gape, which you've also trademarked as the no gape or just no gape, I believe, two words. Um, now, the fashion industry is not typically known for designers being able to protect themselves. Um, things get knocked off left and right and it's always a concern, I think, with with designers, a valid concern of how do I protect my designs? How do I protect my ideas? Um, so this is a really unique thing that you've done. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, how you were actually able to successfully secure your patent. So the patent, firstly, I have two utility patents. There is something also called a design patent. And when I was applying for the patent, it was advised that I go for a utility patent because they are, uh, more defensible. In other words, a design patent, it's much more difficult to defend. Is that because it's a little bit more subjective than objective? I think so. Okay. Yes, I think so. And uh, so I, the way I patented, I actually Googled once again and found locally uh, a lawyer that had done a lot of work for Nike. And I thought, okay, if this person can do utility patents for a big fashion company like that, surely they can handle this. So um, I was able to get one patent and then a follow-on patent to expand the scope of it. So the patent basically covers that I own the rights to be able to create shirts that and other products that have buttons on it, um, something called an interstitial fastener. So essentially it's the alternating cadence of how the buttons are situated. And um, it was a very long process. Frankly, there's expense involved in it. Um, it's something that is worth finding capital for in the beginning if you think you have something that can be patented because it can be worth much more in the future, not only in terms of your own brand, but in terms of you know, being able to sell it or license it down the road. Yeah, it was a multi-year process. The patent office is very backlogged. It can take forever. Trademarks are much easier to get, though still not all that simple. But it was recommended to me very early on, if you have a name for your product, get it trademarked. Trademark your own name if you can, too, if your name is related to your product. Um, if you're setting up a business, talk to a lawyer or accountant about how to, if, if, your na- if your company is named after you, how to set up your business so that in the event that, if, you know, if you're so successful and you sell your business that you aren't necessarily selling the rights to your name. That's mm-hmm. something that a lot of big designers have actually had to do and then they can't use their name. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, you know, doing research. I think I think for most people, having a trademark is 
a more accessible thing than having a patent. It is unusual in fashion, but because it's not necessarily fashion, it's function, it's patentable. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about your niche market. So obviously you do have a very specific feature in your garments that you offer, whether it's in a shirt or a shirt type of dress, which I know you have. Um, you, you know, this whole idea for the product came about because you personally had a, a problem with the garments you were finding in the industry. You clearly searched high and low for the perfect product. You couldn't find it. Um, and so you figured out kind of your niche market is this woman who, well, I'll let you tell, tell us who your niche market is, but you defined your niche market and you solved a problem. Um, and I want to, I want to hear you talk a little bit about how these things have been important in the initial launch and then the growth of your brand. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Defining your niche market is incredibly important. I could argue, rightly so, that my audience is women 18 to 110. Which is not a niche at all. <laughs> Which is not a niche at all. Because every woman in, within that demographic wears a button-down shirt for some function of her life. An 18-year-old or a 22-year-old is wearing it on her first interview. You know, a 35-year-old lawyer is wearing it to work. A 50-year-old mom is, you know, wearing it, whatever. You know, women are, women are wearing button-down shirts. So there's a very large market there. The question is, you can't sell to all those people. Your marketing, your branding will never make sense if you're selling to all those people. So you have to choose what your niche is. Now, once you choose your niche, you'll be able to pull in people from those other demographics. Um, you know, cool moms are buying contemporary brands, even though the contemporary brands have 18-year-old models in them. So there's a lot of sort of cross-pollination, but determining who that market is determines everything. It determines how you speak to your customer, what language you use on your website, um, what your Instagram feed looks like. It determines everything. And for me, I don't think I've actually done that good of a job of defining it because I think the bounds of it are very loose and they're in some ways largely defined by pricing. Um, so it's less, I think, an age demographic that we're after than a pricing demographic. Someone who's willing to spend between $76 and $200, shirts on, $200 on a shirt. And beyond that is cares enough about what her shirts look like that she cares about the gape. There are plenty of women out there I, I, who probably don't care. It's a, you know, it's a great thing for them to show their wares or they're not wearing button down shirts at all. So I would say we really, to a degree, double down on the modern urban professional woman because she's the one that is investing in shirts. She's wearing them regularly. She's buying them over and over. She's buying them in every color and she's wearing them out on the weekends. So that customer is between 25 and 55, we would say in general. So it's a pretty large scope, but it's someone that we know has disposable income and cares about what they look like and has an has an inclination toward wearing button down shirts, which is not going to be sort of your young, hip, like nasty gal, you know, customer. I mean, it's I think also I, the most compelling part, I can't believe I didn't even say this before, is how the product is photographed. 
and determining how you photograph your product and photography can be expensive unless you have a friend who's a photographer which is always you know golden in this industry um, that choosing who models it or whether you do lay downs and take pictures from you know just the product um, I think that's where the branding becomes much more clearly defined and uh, and that can it can also change a little bit over time but I think knowing really who your customer is 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 critical yeah that's interesting um, I mean I have found that with a lot of um, the stuff I do in in the couple businesses that I run and I think that the thing that I, I hear people scared of about defining a, a niche is, well, that's not enough people or something to that extent. Like they want the option to market to everybody. You know, I've, I've come across multiple designers who want to start brands that carry extra, extra, extra small through 5XL. And that's such a bizarre concept to me because the ability to market to there is no ability to market to everybody. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, like what you just said, who models the clothes, how they, I mean, some of the things you didn't even touch on is like what prints and textiles are you using. And you can't, you can only make so many SKUs and you can only have so many variations of models and how you display your product that it's impossible to market to everybody. So I'm a firm believer that the more niche your market is, the easier mm -hmm. it becomes. And even if, the sheer amount of numbers of, of people that fit into that niche is smaller. It doesn't matter. You're, you're so much, so much you can, it's so much easier to reach those people mm -hmm. once you figure out exactly who they are. Um, and I don't know if you've done this, but I've talked to a lot of people in industries, um, in the fashion industry who, and other industries who, they create an avatar for their for their target market, their niche market, their their ideal end customer, and they give that avatar a name, mm. and it's like, oh, Jenny, or I don't know what her name is, but Jenny, uh, would Jenny like this? And and Jenny has an age, and she has a job, and she lives somewhere, and when and when they do anything, when they do marketing, when they do product development and design, they say, "Would Jenny like this? Is this something Jenny would buy?" Have you? We absolutely about did that. that? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I had a wonderful uh, summer intern a couple summers ago from Harvard Business School. She was just like out of my league, but she helped us create this app, this avatar. Yeah. I can't remember what her name was. Oh, I, really I remember what the intern's name was. She was wonderful, but what the avatar's name was. But everything was measured up against. You know, I think she was a. 28 year old, you know, lawyer living in New York City with a little bit of student debt, but like, like going out. Um, we came up with an entire profile for her. And yeah. yes, that really helped to nudge our product closer to where it needs to be. You said something that was very interesting, and I want to echo it and maybe sort of delve a little deeper into it, which is that, I mean, again, you know, when I started, I was like, this is for every woman. What woman wouldn't want this? But you, when you try to catch everyone, you end up probably catching. Very, you know, fewer than you want. And you're right, being super specific about who that customer is, developing the product for her, going really narrow because there's so many brands out there now. So just own that customer. You're right, what the prints look like, what the fit of the product is that defines everything. I mean, a, a white shirt at a place like Chico's, for instance, you know, will fit very differently than a white shirt from Express. 
even though it could look the same on the on the hanger, you know, because they know each who their customers are, and both of them are doing phenomenally well, uh, knowing exactly who their customer is, even though they're creating the same product, the same white shirt potentially for for each of their customers. So, yeah, I think that was a very good point that you made. Yeah. All right. So, kind of stemming right off of the defining your niche market and your target customer, I want to talk a little bit about who you hang with. Um, and why that's important. Um, I've done some trainings lately and we've talked a lot about you know, who you hang with. And when we say this, we mean, where's your garment in the store? What rack is it on? What brands is it next to? And why that's really important. So you told me a story once a few months back um, about some of your products that wound up at a retailer. And would you mind telling that story to the audience? <laughs> sure. <laughs> So I sold, I had some leftover products and firstly, I love TJ Maxx um, anyway and love shopping there, especially in the runway section. Um, but I had a lot of leftover product that I needed to sell and I was able to get a hold of a buyer and they bought a lot of product from me. And the Buyer, I mean, firstly, when you work with a store, any store, a department store or an off-price retailer like TJ Maxx, there are different buyers for the niche parts of their store. Um, so I knew, you know, the buyer I was working with, what part of the store she stocked, basically. But she bought the shirt and I... I wanted to, you know, again, I mentioned this runway section. The runway section at TJ Maxx, if you're not familiar with it, is like where the goods are. Like, we're talking about Helmet Lang. We're talking about, they have like Versace there. They get like the good stuff. And it's, it's amazingly, I mean, some of it's still a little expensive, but it's like the, it's the good, the good area. So a couple months after, or a couple weeks actually, because TJ Maxx is so fast, after I had shipped the product to the TJ Maxx warehouse, I was in the TJ Maxx in Washington DC and I saw my product, I saw the shirt hanging and I was so excited because it was so cool in a place that I had shopped since I was a child that the shirt was hanging in TJ Maxx. It gave me such pride, but I, I didn't really like where it was hanging, even in an off-price place like TJ Maxx, where presumably things are sort of tossed around and everyone knows that you know it's either season ends or, or overrun stock. I didn't like where it was sitting in the store. I thought it should be with brands that I thought it was more like, like Theory and Dime von Furstenberg and a lot of the contemporary brands that I love. So I just grabbed a whole stack of hangers with shirts on them and I moved them to where I thought they should be, which was in the front <laughs> of the store, merchandise with all the other brands that I thought I should sit with because for customers, even if they're buying my product at TJ Maxx, for them to be able to associate the high qualityness of my product with the other brands that they also know are high quality is really important. That equation, I think, should happen at every step of your distribution, even if it's at TJ Maxx. And so um, TJ Maxx really knows how to sell product. They're, they they move through their product quickly. So it, it was bought pretty quickly, but uh, I put it where I thought it should be because that was important to me. Yeah. I don't know what happened in the other stores where it was sold, but at least I had control over the one in the city in which I lived. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I, uh, every time I think of you, I, re I am reminded of that story. I too am a TJ Maxx shopper, and, um, but I just love the whole concept of how important it was for the customer to see that 
my product is just in line with all these other products. You know, if it gets stuck in the juniors department, you know, some of that stuff or the, I don't even know what the normal women's department's called. Yeah, Missy or women's, yeah. yeah. It just, it can get misconstrued. Um, so it's like, you know, where on the shelf is it? Yeah. I mean, I, we spend so much time at the shirt protecting our brand, making sure that it's in the right place of distribution, making sure that the branding is spot on, that even as it goes sort of down the line, you don't want it to, you don't want it to be lost even there. And so protecting it is just, is hugely important. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, (laughs) So on that note, um, Rochelle did tell me that story months back, and that leads us right into our reveal. Um, And that is that Rochelle and I have been really, really, really good friends and have known each other since I think it's like 1994, (laughs) which is like middle, early middle school. Um, We go back very far. And I'm so excited because we both... You know, we were very good friends throughout high school, and then we both went on kind of different career paths, and then we both wound up in fashion at the end of the day. But even in middle school, we would go to the fabric stores and buy fabric, and your mom would sew, like, dresses for us. And we were even interested. It's just, it's kind of incredible. If you have a... If you have something inside of you that needs to be expressed or an interest, like it, it usually, it might not always appear early on, but it really needs to be manifested in some ways. And for yeah. us, it both was the foundings of it were there, even in the early 90s. I forgot about that, but yeah. I now remember, and I just, I have a picture in my head of the dresses that my mom sewed us, I think for, for graduation. Grade, graduation. graduation. <laughs> Yours was purplish and mine was pinkish. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank Rochelle Barons for taking the time out to talk to me. You can find more out about her at the-shirt.com. I'll remind you that this concludes part one of a two-part series. In part two, Rochelle and I will discuss questions from the audience and talk in greater detail about the business of fashion. I am So Heidi. Go to SoHeidi.com. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com to learn more about me, and I'll see you next time.